Hi, I'm Jacqueline Freeman. And I'm Sarah Korn. You're listening to Kitchen Table Alchemy, living in full color. This is a podcast for people who see and spread the magical in everyday life. Hello, welcome. So uh, grab your cuppa and have a seat. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, so uh, today we're going to we're going to start off like in in the deep we're belly. going to the dark side. We really are <laughs> going to start in the in the land of shadows. Uh, but we promise that we will make our way to the light by the time it's all done. Um, so uh, the first segment we're going to be talking a little bit about um, death and dying um, here in America and tying that into a sort of bigger picture of things. Um, and the reason that came up is because I'm like obsessed with this right now. Um, not only in my uh, healing ceremony certification class um, this semester, we were talking about uh, death, dying, and bereavement and the rituals that go around that. Um, but my grandmother, uh, who had fallen in January, um, I got the call that she had gone into labored breathing. And so um, in a mad rush last week, um, bought tickets and went to Memphis to uh, say goodbye to her. Um, and so it's gotten me thinking a lot about death and dying. And so then I'm going to vomit all of this onto the microphone <laughs> <laughs> today. So, um, but yeah, like before, yeah, like talk, like, I'm, like you say something and let me gather my thoughts. Say and something then- <laughs> enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like about death and dying in general. Like, yeah. Well, you know, the thing, um, the thing about it for me is, so I've been fortunate that I haven't had anyone really, you know, close to me die. Um, and so I have this, um, this sort of, you know, whenever it comes up that someone else, you know, that, I, uh, like you that is going through it, um, I, there's that awkwardness of sort of, um, one, I don't know what it's like, so I can't really mm. come from that place. And then two, um, there's that knowledge that there's nothing I can really there is say nothing you can that's going to make it better, you know? Yeah. And so for me, I've, uh, tried to become better with, you know, as people say, holding the space yeah. for people, but I don't really know how to do that. I've never gotten any kind of training or, you know, it's one of those things. People don't really talk about it very much. So no. I'm actually kind of looking forward to this discussion because since you do know more <laughs> about it, not just because of your personal experience, but with the classes that you're taking that, yeah. you know, I would love to hear like, how, how can we be there? Um, for people who are going through the loss of a loved one in a way that's helpful and, um, supportive and not trivializing anyway, or making it this like trite kind of saccharine thing. I think Mm, people have this idea, right. That they want to say something that's going to make it better. Yeah. And, um, and so then we end up saying really silly things, right. Or, or like trite things like, Oh, it'll get better. (laughs) Like, yeah, these kind of like (laughs) condescending platitudes really. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and there really isn't any, yeah. That's the thing is it's like, I don't want to say one of those things, right? but I want, I don't want to say nothing either. Right. You know? So I don't want to just be like, I have nothing to say on the subject, but then I don't want to say something that's, you know, trite. And, yeah. And, no, it's, you it's know, yeah. hard and it is awkward. Um, and I think, too, in that grieving space, grieving is really vulnerable. Um, it's really vulnerable. And I, and I saw 
how much my family has issue with that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were, and this has happened with funerals, like with my mom's funeral. They didn't, they didn't even want a public funeral. They wanted to do something with just the immediate family in my uncle's backyard, hmm. and um, it was at my mom's uh, deathbed that I really learned how important it is to see the love in the room. Right? She drank herself to death by fifty six, and and I realized in her hospital room that. Um, she did that because she couldn't feel the love in the room. Mm. And so it became really important to me to, to make, to allow people to love me, which means I need to be okay with being vulnerable sometimes, Mm. right? Because it's in those spaces that like the grieving process is very vulnerable and people don't know what to say because they know there's nothing they can say that's going to make it better. We can't say words that bring them back or fix all these things. So the only thing we know to do is just be there. And if we close the space off because we don't want people to see us with our faces contorted in pain or our mascara running down our cheeks or whatever. Like, mm. um, or for, for men, right. They don't want to see people crying, right. seeing them cry at all or whatever. Um, so if we're too worried about being too exposed or too vulnerable, then we're also shutting off the spaces for those that love us to just be there. Cause that's really all you can do is just be there. Right. Mm. Um, and uh, and let people know, you know, I'm thinking about you, and um, and and the grieving process takes a while, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so this is one of the things too that I think is really interesting. And in my uh, like, you know, retreating into my little geeky, my my inner geekdom um, <laughs> with this kind of stuff, and realizing how much we run away from death and grieving in our culture, it really had me wondering how much our glorification of death in popular culture is a way to try to get us to face it. How so? Because it is so inevitable, right? Like when you're looking at, like if we're pulling, if we're looking at fairy tales and folk tales and how they work, like your most powerful figures are the ones that understand the life death life cycle. Right. So they're usually, um, indicated by certain colors depending on uh depending on the culture but red white and black show up across multiple cultures so so if you see that somebody you know if there's descriptions of the colors in the dress or descriptions of the colors of the tablecloth or whatever and it's showing those colors it's usually an indicator within the framework of the story that you're dealing with a character that understands a life death life cycle Hmm. and um and within, like, if we look at, it's easier to understand if we're looking at nature, right? Like, nature doesn't let anything go to waste. So, like, the the tree that falls, so it's the death of that tree, but in its falling, it becomes food for all these different insects, and they're, right, and animals and things like that, mm-hmm. and it'll, it'll be ho- literally homes for lots of different creatures for a while, but during that process, it totally disintegrates, and that feeds the soil that allows the other plants to grow, right? So there's this constant life, death, life, and if we don't understand when to prune things, if we don't understand when to let stuff go, if we don't understand, right, then we're going to have a lot of suffering. And um, I think it's probably really easy for people to understand that if we're thinking about relationships, 
right? I mean, how many of us have been in relationships that were really, really painful? Why? Because we didn't let it go when it was time for it to go. Like like years before. Right. And you look back and go, why didn't I end it then? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And people have, they'll talk about how the relationship was like a coffin and do you know what I mean? So we, we use these metaphors around it. We recognize after the fact that, um, not being able to accept the death of something, is causing us a lot of pain and grief and sets us up in right. these really bad places. Because but, letting go of it makes way for something new is absolutely. basically what it, yeah. What yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the same kind of principle, right? That's like the, the big tidying thing that's happening right now with people recognizing like tidying up your house and moving things out and only having things in your house that you bring you joy, right? Like right. the space that is occupied by things that aren't working or you don't use or don't make you happy. Like, yeah. That's space that things that you would use that would make you joyful and would make you happy can't get into because those things are there, right? So, um, but as a culture, when it comes to like real life death, we don't want to look at it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. And, and I found out, um, and a lot of like, and when we do talk about it, it's really interesting. Um, like the, the literature on thanatology, the study of death. The literature on thanatology, when you're talking about American death rituals or American death process or whatever, is largely around the commercialization of it. It's talking about not getting ripped off by funeral directors. It's, you know what I mean? Like Mm. they, they spend very little time actually talking about the ritual and the process of actual dying and, and death and the funeral, right? Right. Like we, we spend a lot of time talking about the process and the industry and the commercialization of it. Um, and then we also don't have like, here we are very, like very proudly sort of self-made culture and lift that up and power of the individual and all this kind of stuff. But the dying have very little say in what's going on in that process, right? right. It's doctors and funeral directors that direct that, yeah. not the dying themselves. And, in some situations in our society, when we talk about the dying being the one in control of that, then it just, we just lose it, right? Like mm-hmm. when Kevorkian first started coming out, when was that? It was like 90s, wasn't it? I thought it was the 80s, late 80s maybe. But when that, when, when that, that idea of being able to choose your time of death, if you're, yeah. you know, in, in a, uh, if you have a fatal disease or something like that. Exactly. Like it just sparked the storm. So the very idea that we'd be masters of our own death <laughs> freaks us out, right? right? I never but, thought of it that way. <laughs> but like the rest of our lives, we want control of everything all the time. But then like this really important transition, yeah. we're going to leave it over to, to doctors and funeral directors and not even give it to our families. I found out um, in my class, I did not realize that it is totally legal to have your own funeral process, you are not legally required to embalm the body. And that is actually really unique to American... Um, embalming? Yeah. I, I've always, Embalming, the idea, that's always creeped me out. Right. It makes it, <laughs> it's, it's really like unique to the North American continent, actually, huh. and or America and Canada. Uh, the, I don't know about Mexico, but... Um, so that idea of embalming is not legally required, and you're totally allowed to do everything yourself. 
So like the funeral industry, we're paying them so that we don't have to deal with this. Right. So then it starts to make sense that they're like taking advantage of that. Right. Right. Like if you're, if you don't want to deal with this necessary thing, that's a part of life and it's so icky and ew, right? Like, Mm -hmm. well, okay, well then they can charge us whatever they want to charge us because we've got this idea that we can't handle it. But, um, but it was fascinating to me to find out that you can totally do everything at home and, and to find out about people that specialize in doing home funerals and, Hmm. Um, death doulas, they call them. Really? Oh my gosh, I did not because know Because it's, was right? Something. You're like <laughs> yeah. midwifing someone into the next phase of existence. So, um, which I'm finding fascinating. Like, I never would have thought yeah. that that would be a form of ritual huh. that I'd be interested in, but, um, uh, but I'm very intrigued, right? It's just yeah. amazing all of this is converging at exactly this moment for me. But, um, but yeah, and it, it, so it makes me wonder, like, how much, um, the, the obsession with, with death and killing and dying in our popular media is like, if we see, we can't deal with it in real life so we can deal with it in so sort of this fictionalized version of it. Yeah. Gotcha. So we're like swimming in it. And then yeah. it's this like kind of toxic, weird. Yeah. Well, and I think there's this, there's this interesting, um, sort of contradictions that happen around death. And I thought of it when you brought up the thing with Kevorkian, um, is, um, you know, sort of this idea of when is it okay to kill someone? When is it not okay to kill someone? Is it okay to kill yourself or not? And, and, um, uh, you know, it's, and I think that a lot, the reason that a lot of people were outraged by the idea that, you know, Kevorkian could help people die, you know, when they wanted to, um, instead of waiting for it was that, um, just so this idea, this moral principle of, well, it's not okay to kill someone, including yourself, which is, is one of those things. It's like, but if someone's suffering, right. is, are you really doing the right thing by keeping them alive? Right. And that's something that you do see dealt with sometimes in shows where, you know, there's a thing where a character is mortally wounded or something. And then another one, you know, puts them out of their misery. And it, it's one of those very, um, it's like old yeller. It's, yeah, <laughs> all right. Again. Like all this, right? All this stuff that we're like, oh, that's just awful. Why yeah. would you show that to children? And, like, well, but then, it's a part of life. Right. Like, and yeah. then the flip side of that, so something I thought about when I was watching a different show, I was watching Dexter, which was um, about a, a serial killer who has a moral code. Right. Yeah. No, I have <laughs> which is, this one. Yeah. Yeah. So which is <laughs> like really a mind bender in and of itself, yeah. right? But I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, um, because he's, he's addicted to killing people. Like he gets a thrill from it. And so that's sort of the thing that he has to overcome over the course of the show. And, and I thought, you know, if Dexter were in the military, he could right. totally kill people all the time. He could be a sniper, or some special forces person and kill people. And it would be, and he'd be a hero for his right. country, yeah, totally. you know? And so it's one of those things that, you know, we think that there's this very, clear moral thing of killing is bad and, and, you know, keeping people alive is good. But when you really start to examine it on a deeper level, it really isn't that black and white at all. Which is really, it's why I I love the symbol, like the Tao symbol of the yin and the yang, Mm -hmm. right? Where you have the 
the like circle the sort of with where the, the circle sort of teardrops or yeah. fish or whatever. That, <laughs> uh, inside the white one, you have the dark, and mm-hmm. inside the dark one, you have the white. And I think it, um, and they're constantly in movement, right? So it shows that if you go too deep into something, you find the opposite there, right? Oh, so like this idea right. of this no, you should always be prolonging life. Um, when I first started university, seriously, I went a couple of times and changed majors and dropped out or whatever. But when I when I got started for real, um, after my son started school, it was actually nursing school. Um, I ended up getting my degrees in English <laughs> and women's studies uh, and media studies. But I started in nursing school, so I was like really stretching. I was really outside of my comfort zone. But um, I I was at a hospital like RN program and had done two hospital rotations before I started my process to transfer over to the university. And in both of those hospital rotations, I had a, a person whose family would not take them off crash cart. Right. So anytime they, they had an attack, we had to resuscitate them mm-hmm. and it was horrible I, and I'm so glad that I got that lesson really early on mm-hmm. um, because it, it just, like, I remember this one woman. Um, it's like someone wanted to die and needed to die and it was their time to die and you had to keep bringing them back to life. We had to keep life. bringing them back to life. Ugh. Yeah, it was yeah. awful. And, like, imagine. there was this one woman in particular. She was, you know, in her early 80s and um, diabetic had had uh, multiple lacuna infarctions, so they're like these teeny tiny little strokes up in uh, capillary parts of the brain. Um, she'd had embolisms that had lost limbs, right? Wow. And every time I touched her, then it would be, oh, lordy, 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 lordy. Like, that's all. She was just in so much pain oh all the gosh. time, right? Because, like, di- uh. you get to a certain point with diabetes where there's, like, this awful nerve pain. So, uh. like, everything hurts, right? Um, and, of course, she would have days where she was doing a little bit better. But it doesn't mean that she was doing better at capital B. Do you right. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. there's just that this day wasn't as bad as most days. But the family would not take her off crash cart. We had to keep uh-huh. resuscitating her and keep resuscitating her and keep resuscitating her. And it was horrible. And I saw then that that sort of like, no, we have to do everything. Like it was fueled much more by what I saw then was that it was fueled by this guilt having not done enough with her while she mm. was alive and before right. she got to the hospital yeah. that they weren't able to let her go. Yeah. Um, but it certainly was not in, in kindness and for compassion her. for her. Yeah. It had nothing to do with her. And again, it's that she was no longer an agent of her own life. Right. That's right? one of the things that scares me the most, I think about getting old and it is just that idea that at some point you, you get to that point where you're no longer in control and other people are and, and will they do right by you? Right. right. <laughs> this can be kind of a scary thing. I mean, I've heard so many stories of families who fight over the care of, um, you know, a person who's, um, uh, you know, in their final years and, and, and both over how to care for that person and, you know, whether to keep them alive or not. And then also just about 
like the possessions, right? There are oh families that fight like crazy over people's possessions before they're even dead. It's yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, no, it really, oh. really is. <laughs> it really, really is. Like we have we have a lot to work to yeah. do around <laughs> this very essential part of life. Yeah, right. And um, it was really interesting. Some of the things that ha- so everything happened at the funeral home. Um, apparently, my grandmother had bought this package like when my mm-hmm. uh, grandfather had died. So everything happened at the funeral home. Um, they did the viewing for the family only um, before the visitation, and then like when we went out the day of the the burial services, and we you know we followed out to the gravesite, and they apparently had been instructed not to lower the coffin while the family was by the graveside. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even like the most simple of death rituals, Which right? Is throwing the dirt to put on, the dirt yeah. on the thing or to put a flower on the casket after it's lowered into the ground, right? Like that didn't even happen. Oh. Um, and people were standing around talking for a while because um, part the family didn't even all go together afterwards to eat. Um, which which made me really sad, but um so people stayed around the gravesite for a long time talking and like, you know, the, the, the Memorial Gardens guys like standing there, like waiting for everyone to leave. <laughs> and, um, we had parked quite a bit away. So, you know, we're walking, uh, walking down and, um, and it wasn't until like I was at my car and saw that there was nobody around the grand site. Like then he starts Lowering. doing the crank to lower her down. Right. Yeah. So, um, and it's, it's interesting to think about why it is that we have so much issue with this. And I think part of it too has to do with our fear of emotions Hmm. and our aversion to vulnerability. Right. Like, because it like, yes, it's painful to watch the casket go into the ground, but, but there's nothing wrong with it being painful. And you have to go through the pain. Anyway, I would imagine, yeah, at some point. Right. Like (laughs) otherwise, like it just, you know, then you're just prolonging it. Right. Then things, things will happen to rip the, the wound off because the unit, like that's, in my view, that's what we're here for is to learn how to love more fully. So if we're not doing it in that space, then these things will continue to happen to us until we will deal with it. Right. So, um, one thing that I, um, have noticed like, you know, cause in, um, most of the funerals I've seen have been on TV, you know, where they do the grave graveside service and, 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 uh, you know, and one thing that people often say is, well, they're in a better place now. And, and that kind of got me thinking, well, if they're going to a better place, then really death isn't all that bad for them. <laughs> like, right. it's like, okay, yeah. new adventure for you. <laughs> it's really for the people who are living, who are left behind, right. who don't get to see that person anymore. They're the ones that are really suffering it. by yeah. the death. Right. Um, Which so, is why we need those rituals to be able to deal with that. Right. right. Like, um, and it's interesting because the like the ancient Celts, for example, definitely lived by this sort of idea. So they cried at births and celebrated funerals, right? Oh, really? Because you were brought in they, this, this veil of tears, right? It was their idea of this of this classroom, and so being born was like, oh, how horrible that this. Oh no, poor, poor baby. <laughs> right. This poor, amazing spirit has been like now confined to this flesh cage, you know, and, and now the cage doors are open and the bird can fly again at the funeral. Right. right. So, so they cried at births and celebrated at deaths. Interesting. And, um, 
and it's also like, again, the stuff that I was learning, um, in my class. And, uh, there's a book that I'm reading called, um, from Ronald Grimes called deeply into the bone reinventing rites of passage. And in that he talks about like Chinese funeral rites, and those are not for the dead. Right. It's so like, okay, they've got their own journey. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the funeral rites are to demonstrate filial piety. So, um, so the children are supposed to be in active mourning for three years. And there's a series of rituals and things that they're supposed to do on a daily basis wow. for those three years. And the idea, and then after that, it goes into like the ancestor veneration, right? And um, very similar to like Mexican Day of the Dead kind of ideas, right? This this idea that um, your relationship with your loved ones does not stop when they die; it just oh. changes, right? Right. So, um, hmm. so a lot of naturist religions. Um, and a lot of the Eastern religions, and then you see this reflected in, in things like Dia de los Muertos, this idea that your, your relationship with your ancestors continues after their death, and they are always there to help you and to guide you, and you can talk to them whenever you want to, and, huh. right? Um, and then some cultures will be more ritualized around that relationship than, than others will be, but, um, and it was interesting for the Chinese stuff, the three years is seen as a reflection of the intense care that they had to give you right. the first three years of your life. Oh, so yeah. now it's, it's, it's like the idea of that prayer you're and intention and ritual, world kind of right? Thing. That you're giving them the extra energy and focus and attention that they need to be able to make their transition. Hmm. Right. So, um, so really interesting cause it's not, yeah. it's not about, the one that passed. And I think, um, I've had a sense of that for a really long time. I haven't, my mom's, my mom's death was a little different, but normally at funerals, um, I know they're okay. And I don't, I'm not sad about the person that passed. I, when I cried, it was crying for the people that were there that were having a hard time dealing with the passing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, but it's, I think so in the class, like we talked about, um, these different phases of dying, the death itself, and then what happens after the death. Right. Um, and in thinking about this, this idea of how we avoid death. And if we see ourselves as a culture, as one organism, right. Um, there as a culture, because we don't deal with death, then we're like consuming it all the time in these really kind of toxic ways Mm -hmm. because it's such an important part of life that we're compelled to deal with it in one way or another, or at least be faced with it. Right. Right. Um, but then if we think of like the planet as a whole, as an organism and, how we as different cultures interacting with each other on this planet are operating the same way. Um, because the, the, the terrorist attacks in, in Brussels and then like two days before in Ankara and the day after in, in um, uh, not Palestine, Pakistan. Pakistan. Thank you. Um, so there was this rash of terrorist attacks, like as I'm looking for, for, oh, for, for flights. So um, and, uh, and it again got me thinking about like how all of this, how we're all working together to try to 
actualize and move forward in our development. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that again, these terrorist attacks are, they force us to deal with death. They force us to face the fact that we are not in control of everything and we do not have dominion over everything. Right. Right. Um, and the things that we talked about in my class with the sort of things to be aware of, I think are things that can really help us. I think if we deal with that a little bit better then we're going to see shifts and how, yeah, I think there's definitely, um, you know, what came up for me when you were talking about that is that, um, you know, like with death, death is, you know, something happens, the person dies and they're dead and it's in the past. You can't change it. You can't bring them back. And so then all you can do, all that you do have control over at that point is how you're going to choose to deal with it. Right. And of course we see the same thing with the terrorist attacks. You know, right. are we, yeah, that terrible thing happened and all those people died. And now the question is, are we going to become more insular? Are we going to, you know, try to put up these walls and, you know, protect ourselves from terror, literally put up walls, right? right. As some people suggest, right. or, or are we going to, um, you know, dig deep into our humanity and find compassion for one another, um, despite right. the terrible things that happen. Right. Like, because really, that we do have control over. Yeah. That we really do have how control we choose over. to deal with it. And, and I think if we, take a moment to sit back and like look in the places in our own lives where we're desperately grasping for control and trying to exert dominion over things and, and look at the consequences it has in our own life. Like, Mm -hmm. like really honestly, not, not blaming the thing for not bending to our will, which is what we tend to do this stupid crap. And, and it like pair that up with this kind of disposable society that we have. And if something's not working the way we want it to, then we just throw it away and go buy a new one. Right. Like Mm -hmm. maybe sue someone in the process. If we spend a lot of money on it, like that's kind of how we deal with stuff when it doesn't bend to our will, you know what I mean? And, um, and it's not healthy and it's not helpful. And, um, like some of the things that we talked about in the class, like for the dying process, like the big three points were like, remember these things and everything else will fall into place kind of idea, right? Okay. Was to bear witness, to, to invite the not knowing mind hmm. and to practice active compassion, right? Okay. Um, so bearing witness, that's just being there and allowing someone to feel what they feel. Is that what that is? Right. Okay. Yeah. Just, uh, holding the space. Basically, if you're bearing witness, then you're, you're holding the space and allowing like not trying to change something or push something down or bring something up. It's just, okay. Yes. I'm not trying to make them feel better. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I recognize this and I, I, I acknowledge that in you. Right. Right. Um, and then I think that not knowing mind, letting um, go of expectations and control is yeah, that what I that think is that's part of it. I think we can do a lot of unpacking on the not knowing mind. Like that could be wh- a whole nother. Segment. Oh, seriously. It really could. <laughs> like if we think about like why we want to know stuff, mm. what are we trying to do with that? Like, what right. does it mean? And what do we have to let go of to have a not knowing mind? Like yeah, everybody could do like journal pages on that. Like, so like we could all just like, let's have like a two day meditation on the not knowing mind. Um, yeah. Cause there's a lot to unpack there and there's a lot in that, 
that goes so contrary to the way that we want to do things and the way mm-hmm. that we culturally tend to set, tend to set things up. Right. Right. Yeah. And then like in the death section itself. So when, when the person is actually passed, um, the sort of cardinal rule they gave us for that in class was less doing and more being right. So not, and especially as celebrants, um, they were like, you know, don't be like, rushing for the candles or the incense or the whatever thing you want to do some kind of ritual with, like model stillness Hmm. and being with the emotions and right. Right. Just making space for that to come up and happen and let whatever comes to the door, open the door and let it in. Makes sense. Cause the sense I've gotten, um, just from hearing about, you know, other people going through it is they're, um, sort of, um, time sort of loses its meaning, you know, and, and, you know, it's one of those things where everything else suddenly fades into the background, you know, in terms of importance and, and, uh, you know, grief can be sort of all consuming and, and, and so I, that just, when you said that just sounds like, yeah, that seems like, you know, you're sort of out of time to a certain extent when you're going through something like that. Yeah, Absolutely. And to, to just sit and, and let that happen, yeah. I think. And I've heard about that actually, um, not just with death, but with, um, really bad breakups, mm. you know, cause sometimes there are things that we have to grieve or go through that process it and it's death. not a death. It's, but it's, but it is a someone, death. It's a death right? of a relationship. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And you are losing someone. Yeah. Yeah. And you're losing a lifestyle and you're losing the dreams you had and the possible future that's yeah. now not going to happen. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there is, yeah. there's a lot of deaths there, right? It yeah. may not be a physical death of that person, but there's a lot of deaths or people get laid off, yeah. you know, from a company they've been with forever, a job they loved, you know, and they were, um, you know, saw themselves being there for a long time and yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, and that, we want to do something because it makes us feel in control, mm-hmm. right? Like so much of this I think has to do with wanting to be in control. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's like the little Buddhist meme, right? Like relax, nothing's under control. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't known that one before. Like the more we practice that, you know, the easier it is kind of do. And like, and they were talking too about the after death. They said, um, there are no emergencies, Right. Which is interesting because like right after the death, I think I watched my brother's, uh, in-laws do this and, um, same thing with my family. Like it immediately gets into, let's start working on that to-do list. Right. Like, Hmm. uh, well, we got to get this done and this done and this done and this done. And there is this sense of urgency, Hmm. but it made me really think about it. Like, no, they're really like, it's done now. Like there are no more, there are no more, like they're dead. They're not going anywhere. Um, you know, so like, let's just like, just take it easy and it's all going to get done eventually. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. But that again, that going into emergency mode, if we think about what happens to us inside in emergency mode, um, we're in fight, flight or freeze, right? We're going into the least developed part of the brain or the most Mm -hmm. ancient or reptilian part of the brain Mm -hmm. when we're in emergency mode. Like we're not, we're not moving towards higher evolution. 
when we're in a state of emergency, right? Yeah. This is yeah. why fascist governments since the beginning of time manufacture emergencies to keep people in that space, right? right. So mm-hmm. fighting fighting that and um, and realizing that there are no emergencies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, what was active compassion? Mm-hmm. That was one of the, the third thing, I think, on the list. What was that? Yeah, that was during the dying process. So, like, active compassion, I think Brene Brown does such a good job of talking about this. And I, I love the little, there's an RSA animated short of a little clip from her. And I'm pretty sure we've posted it in the Facebook group before, but, uh, it's empathy versus sympathy. Oh, okay. Right. Um, and sympathy is the, the way she defines it is like pushing you're outside someone. You're sort of looking down on someone. You're right. like, whoo, Sure, it's tough down there, you know, as opposed to... Sort of condescending a little bit. Right. You're separated from the person. Right. Right. So whereas empathy is feeling with. So it's not trying to fix. It's not trying to rescue it's not right so it's a lot of that stuff in the mm, in the triangle the triangle right um because Where it's about being sympathy with the person. is more that rescuer kind of yeah place yeah gotcha. okay yeah and the the act of compassion is going to be just again sort of bearing witness and being in the moment and letting like feeling with the person and not trying to shut any of that stuff down i think um, and recognizing that grieving is really, really personal and people have different ways of doing it. Right. So yeah. like the way that my brother responded in, in, on my mom's deathbed was radically different from the way that I responded. Right. right? But that's where he was and that's what and he needed to do. And neither one is right or wrong. Right. It's just where he was and it's where I was. Right. Hello. All right. So this segment, um, we're going to come back. Last episode, we talked about the drama triangle. And um, so we're going to come back to that in this segment. And today, um, we did a pop-up podcast. We announced like yesterday that we were going to do this. And um, Sid West is one of the people that showed up for this. And um, and by and, pop-up podcast, you mean having an audience come yes. and listen to us. Like, you know, hey, guys. <laughs> My kids are like, what's a pop-up podcast? I know, because <laughs> we invented it, because we're awesome. Um, actually, like one of my uh, mentees is the one that suggested that we do this. <clears throat> so, um, but uh, yeah, so pop-up podcast means uh, we announce uh, apparently really last minute this time. <laughs> uh, we'll try to be not so last minute next time, but uh, we announce when and where we're going to be recording and then people can come um, and have a, like a live audience at the recording. And then once the mic gets shut off, then we can discuss what we've talked about a little bit deeper. Um, but this next segment, um, Sid has got, Sid West is with us and she's got such, she's got some really great, like life experience with working with the triangle. So, um, so she's going to jump in on this segment with us. Um, yeah, it'll be cool. And then you'll hear more about her and what she does, um, through that. But Sid and I met, uh, we facilitated together in China for the world Academy for the future of women a couple of years ago. So, um, so we're, we're trying to trench buddies. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the bond is formed for life. So, um, yeah. So Sarah, help us remember a little bit. Uh, oh yeah. With the drama triangle. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, uh, the drama triangle is like a regular sort of equilateral triangle. And, um, uh, and with so a point you've got going the three down. points. Right. 
Oh, sorry. Yes, with the, that's right. The drama triangle one is sort of upside down. Yeah, the points yeah, it's pointing like an down. upside down pyramid, and then um, and then you've got uh, on each of the three points, you've got the victim. Pointing down. Right. Right. So that's at the bottom bottom. of the triangle. And then you've got the rescuer and the persecutor. And what happens, as we talked in the last episode, is that people sort of ping around on that triangle, you know, feeling victimized and then lashing out. And then they become the persecutor and, you know, someone who's trying to be the rescuer, but then the victim lashes out at them. So then they feel like the victim and so um so we won't rehash uh all of last episode but um if you haven't heard it go ahead and listen to episode 10 right yeah yeah. um so what we didn't get to on the last episode that we want to talk about this time is talking about how to flip that triangle to a more um a less dramatic and more empowered way of doing things and so um we both um read uh this book called um the power of Ted, and Ted stands for the the empowerment dynamic, and it's by um, David Emerald. And um, what's so basically the way the Ted triangle works is you flip it. So now the triangle is right side up, and instead of victim, you have the creator. Right, the victim quits quits blaming and and starts creating. Right. Yeah. And right, and so and yeah, and so with the victim, instead of it um, being where the victim is like, uh, they did something to me, they hurt me, you know, uh, someone it's someone else's fault. Uh, The creator, right? The creator says, um, "I'm taking responsibility and taking control of myself." So it's not taking control of other people, but it's taking control of yourself and your own life. Um, and then, so then the, let's see, so then the rescuer, instead of being the rescuer, becomes the coach. Right. And the difference there is that the coach is supporting, empowering, holding space, helping you to become stronger um, without looking down on you the way the rescuer does. The rescuer right. says, you're too weak, you can do it, let me save you, let me help you. Right. Whereas the coach says, I know you can do this, and I'm here to support you right. through that process. Yeah, that, that rescuer really ends up being kind of like the too-good mother that mm-hmm. we see in fairy tales. Like in a lot of fairy tales, the mother dies at the very beginning of the fairy tale, right? And uh, that too-good mother is the rescuer that is based on this idea that you can't do it for yourself, right? So um, let me just take care of of that for you. But the the coach doesn't... The coach sees that you can do for yourself and does not see you as someone who needs to be fixed. Right. Um, So that's a good thing if you're looking for a coach... um, if from their their the way that they talk or the way they handle things or the their information on the website or whatever, there's this like let me fix you mm-hmm. um, kind of mentality. Then you know you're getting ready to step into a drama triangle with somebody because right. um, a coach <laughs> believes you don't need to be fixed. Um, you have everything you need. Yeah. They're there to support, hold space, and and use a lot of questions to help you find those answers yourself. Right. right? So it's not so much prescribing for you as it is facilitating. Yeah. And that was one of the things the first time I saw someone truly coaching someone that was really um, enlightening was I noticed they were, they would ask questions, right? So instead of telling the person, well, you should do this or you should do that, they would say... And then being mad at them because they won't follow their advice. Like classic rescuer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They They would say, 
well, why do you want to do that? Or what are, you know, they would keep asking these probing questions and, well, what do you think? And, you know, how do you feel about this? And, 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 you know, specific to whatever the conversation was. And it was to help the person that they were coaching figure the answers out, like talk it out until they came up with the, the right answer from them that was coming from themselves. Right. Which um, I that was when I witnessed that I was like that's really powerful. Yeah, that's it's, a, it's total a really shift. cool process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, gosh, there was something else I was going to say about the coach, but I forgot it. Nah, I'll well, think so, of it later. And then so <laughs> so then the persecutor on the empowered becomes the challenger. Yeah, right. Um, and and, a, and a challenger could be a person, or it could be an event, or a circumstance, or something. And they can be that. conscious or unconscious, right. and they can be kind and they're challenging, or they can be really nasty about it. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you've you've made me think of a scenario oh, that, awesome. that fit really well with what you're describing. And um, it comes back from my business days running medical centers, and I had 17 in three states. And so a lot can go wrong in 17 <laughs> large you know, medical centers, about 400 employees. Um, and uh, we had done a project that was uh, about empowering the staff to make decisions themselves. And so uh, one day I, I, get, I get word that one of the medical centers, there was something was amok with our idea. And uh, I, I called there to ask the administrator what went on. And, and she said, well, you know, this, uh, this gal who was one of the front desk, um, like a, a receptionist, had noticed a little old lady who was uh, waiting and waiting and waiting. And she went to talk to her. And she said, well, I, I called the ride two hours ago, and they still haven't come. And she said, well, where do you live? And the lady told her. And she goes, well, that's, that's not far from me. If they're not here within the, the next hour when I go home, I can take you. So she proceeded to take the little lady home. Comes in the next morning, and the administrator meets with her and says, what do you think you're doing? Do you realize the risk that you put this institution at? Hmm. Do you realize what you know? Like a liability. A liability. And here we've been encouraging employees to take action, right? So so I get wind of this, so I go, great. So I had been reading Harriet Lerner's book about um, the dance of anger, which is a a version of the triangle. Mm. And and obviously you can see the persecutor and the victim really well here, but I had heard the coach thing before. And that really makes sense to me because that was literally what I had to pull into. Because mm. I wasn't going to rescue anybody in this deal. Right, I mean, there was right, nothing. Right. In fact, I was, I was doing damage control because <laughs> the word got out in three states within the day. Wow. And, then the, and what With does it tell everybody? this business of do take... Yeah, uh, why take a chance? Yeah. Why try? They're just going to slam you. I mean, that's, yeah, that's right. what got out in three states, right, right, just right. like that. Mm-hmm. So I, to me, it was damage control. So I go to meet with the administrator, and, and I said... Um, so she tells me the story, and she's looking for me to agree with her. You know, isn't this horrible what this person did? And I said, well, could you have thought of a different way to handle that? And she goes, well, what do you mean? And I go, well, something like, thank you for taking action on behalf of this patient. But you know what? It indicated a problem that we have. we got to figure out a way to do this that doesn't put you or the company at risk. Why don't you lead a committee, and I'll get you know the right people on it, and you come up with three ideas for me of a way we could deal with that in the future. So the administrator sits back and she she has an oh crap look on her face. I think she <laughs> she got it that 
you know, I, I was trying to do this without criticizing her, but 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 she was not thinking beyond. Right. She was thinking about her piece of yeah. it, which was the liability, the company protecting yeah. the organization. And and I wasn't going to go fix that with her. It's her employee. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, it could have. I, they all reported to me, but I wanted her to fix it. Right. And she did. That's the good news. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, it's like she heard it. And she she did what I asked her to do, and of course, you know that got out a little bit, not as big as the bad news. But, <laughs> Isn't that funny? Um, yeah, um, figures, right? But it, but it did help the people at that medical center see that she was open, mm. and that that she was human, you know, because right. she she did apologize to the guy and said, you know, I, I jumped too quickly, and and I didn't realize I needed to thank you for taking that, um, mm. and so she she did, and and you know, so to her benefit, um, she went from a persecutor actually to coach herself i would say right. in the process and and it had a good successful outcome plus she grew as a person which That's is good. both of them did really yeah in, in a way she empowered that that gal and and uh, yeah. she was able to and, and that's the beautiful thing too about this process is that with the you know the ted triangle is that it empowers people to, it helps them to see each other's points of view. Yeah. Because when you're in that drama triangle, you're defending your position, your decision, whatever, you know, you're seeing things from your point of view and, and defending that and fighting for that. And um, with this dynamic, you can... And driven by fear, right? right. So in this case, the manager was driven by fear of liability against the company, mm-hmm. things like this, right? right? Yeah. Which is, is not... It's not not true. I mean, it's not. Right. right. It wasn't that she was wrong it, to be worried about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> but she wasn't being creative at all mm. or thinking in the big picture. And so right. that's what she needed to get expanded on, in a sense, is to get the big picture and see it in that framework and to see there were more options than she thought. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love that you use the word creative there, right? Because it's, and like we talked about in the last episode, mm-hmm. um, the article that we had posted on the, the, the Kitchen Table Alchemy Facebook group and on the Pinterest page um, was breaking down the triangle basically into the sort of seesaw that are both about victims, right? The mm-hmm. the the persecutor as well as the rescuer are trying to avoid, they're scared of being a victim, right? So they're Mm. doing these things to stay out of that space. So that just becomes this continuum of victimhood. And in your story, the, the, the manager is afraid of becoming a victim to lawsuit of right. The liability that the, that the company comes over, but by being stepping, by being creative and stepping into the creator role, Mm -hmm. then then new possibilities open up about how to handle this so that you're you're dealing with the realities that are there, right? right? Like you said, this So is, you don't have to try some stick your head in the sand approach Right, this either. is not yeah. about, no. <laughs> like, oh, it's all rainbows and light and we should all just hug each other and be okay. Like, you know, like, no, there's stuff that has to be dealt with that's really mm-hmm. important, that's that can be dangerous, that has to be, right? But then how do, how do we take care of that while maintaining our values, right? Then yeah. you have to be... You have to be creative to be able to do that. You have to step into that creator role mm-hmm. um, to be able to find those kinds of solutions. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Like, so what? I'm just curious. Like, what did they come up with? Did they? They came up with the best one was the vouchers, taxi cab vouchers, and nice. that way we could say, "Listen, this isn't working. We're going to get you, give you a voucher here. We'll get the cab here in five minutes." And- Right. Okay. So yeah. you're being proactive, helping the, the patients, taking care of their needs, but also protecting um, the places that you need to protect. Yeah. yeah. 
That's awesome. Like and that. uh, what was important to me was to celebrate that. So I, the way I do, whenever somebody who was an employee came up with an idea, I just I made sure everybody knew it, mm. like that we'd celebrate that idea, and uh, um, because I wanted more ideas like that, yeah. I couldn't come up with all of them. They were closer to the the day to day, right? And so um, they needed to come up with them. Yeah, and I love I love how your story also illustrates how in the moment with the same issue Mm -hmm. we can step out of the drama triangle into the empowerment dynamic right right? like it's not like okay well that's screwed up can't fix that at all so now i'm gonna like go into a cave for three months and try to like work on myself so i can do it better (laughs) right um yeah i'm not speaking about this from personal experience at all clearly (laughs) Um, so (laughs) but like in that in that moment of like having someone come in that's sort of being a challenger and a coach, right? Because mm-hmm. some of the questions that you asked yeah. were really challenging and had that sort of like, uh, like face drop when she realized what had just happened. Um, but that in that moment, you can step out of the persecutor role mm-hmm. and step into coach role, right? Yeah. Or th- via creator, right? Like yeah. coming into the that's space what, of that's creator. That's what's so cool about it is that you can just shift your mindset at any, at any point. You can just go, oh... I know why this isn't working. It's because I'm in this role and then say, you know what? Let's shift perspective and look at it through the creator lens. And then that just, it changes what the possibilities are. Absolutely. The minute you decide to look at it a different way, you see different things. You, you're literally changing your perspective. No, very true. And it's really interesting too. The thing that's coming up for me is, um, like in the work that I do with clients around breaking through anxiety, right? Um, anxiety wants to narrow options, right? It just mm-hmm. makes that gate smaller and smaller and smaller until we feel like there's only one way out and I don't have what it takes to get through. Yeah. Right. So it starts, it shuts everything down. And, um, and, when we're in the space of creator, when we're in the space of our own power, then everything gets flown open, right? So a lot of times the way to open that gate is to say, and this was my mantra for years, like, I have options, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I can figure this out. If the first thing I try doesn't work, I'll figure something else out, right? Like, And so recognizing the options, but it's really interesting too, I think, to kind of fold in political discourse happening right now. There's a lot of people talking about shutting stuff down mm-hmm. right now. And and I'd really like us to think about like what that really means. Mm-hmm. And what are what are we responding out of when we want to shut things down? Are are we responding out of a victim role that there's only one way to handle this and and we got to shut everything down and are or are we stepping into a creator role and popping open options? And, and saying, okay, there's a lot of different ways that we can handle this. Yeah. How can we hold what, what, what can't be let go of, right, um, and, and maintain our values while we solve these problems? You know, and that kind of segues perfectly into the other thing that I wanted to talk about today. Oh, perfect. <laughs> the thing that was on my list that I didn't tell you about. <laughs> so, um, do you want to close this yeah. one to go to the next one? Um, no, no, we could just go right into it. Okay. No, so, um, uh, so I was, so after our, um, uh, after we recorded our podcast last time, um, and you mentioned that then about, you know, shutting things down. Right. Um, and, so a few weeks ago, 
um, someone um, had, a family member had seen, um, this person used to keep sending me stuff that was about how great Donald Trump was. And after a while, I was like, can you please stop sending that to me? (laughs) Like, I don't like the guy. And like, it's okay if you want to like him, but just don't send that stuff to me. And, uh, and then, and then a few weeks later, so when we did the podcast about, um, what to do about Donald Trump. Right. What to do what about the Donald. What to do about the Donald. Um, so, and of course, I, I had shared it on Facebook, and, and he must have seen it. And he, because he, he um, PMs me and says, you know, how could you say that you don't like Donald? You don't want to hear about him, but then you do this podcast about Trump. And I'm like... Did and my first question was, was, <laughs> did you listen to it? And, and I get no response. Right, 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 and then, yeah. and then a while later, I get a response saying, well, I couldn't get past the first two and a half minutes because she was just going on about how much he, I'm assuming he's talking about you. Right, I don't right, know. Right, right. So it was like, so didn't get very far into it. Right. Um, and, uh, didn't so, make it through the firewall. And I, yeah. And I was like, um, and finally my response was, cause I was like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. Like, I'm like, you know what? I, I don't want to be friends with someone who thinks that what Donald Trump is doing is okay. And I just sort of left it at that. And then, and then we had our last podcast that we recorded where we were talking about the drama triangle. And, and you said that about, you know, shutting, shutting things down. And I, and so then afterwards I'm thinking about it and I'm like, Wow, I really just kind of shut that person down. Mm-hmm. And 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 it it brought up for me, you know, this question that I've been wrestling with. Like this isn't the first time I wrestled with it of, you know, when I start to when I'm in a situation like that where the drama is coming up and I'm just like, you know what? I don't want to deal with it. And like, I'm like, I'm taking my ball and going home. You know, like, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> like, I'm not going to play this drama right? game with you guys, you know, yeah. whoever it is. And um, uh, so, so I was like, well, yeah, I do that to spare myself, you know, having to, because it's toxic, you know, and I just don't want to deal with it. And, and I feel like that's, okay. Like it's, I should want to protect myself from negative, um, interactions. Um, but then at the same time I'm looking at going, but you know, but I'm also shutting down that relationship and I'm shutting down the dialogue around that. So, so I started thinking about, well, maybe, you know, should I try to reopen the conversation with this person, um, who likes Trump and it, and it, and it really got me thinking, you know, not, I mean, me with this one person, but then also as a society, right. When we, you know, there's a lot of Trump supporters out there and how, how do we deal with that? Or because if we're just saying you like Trump and there's obviously something wrong with you because you support his ideas, but that's kind of like we're getting to the place. That's a pretty significant part of the population, right? And it's like, point. can we really yeah. afford to to just How shut them down and go? Right. Oh, you're just the crazy people. But it's right. a huge number of people, so right. I'm not sure that we can really. Um, and how treat successful it is that going to be? Right. Like, how how does that work? Right. Like. If you just shut people down, don't listen. I mean, that's that's really oppressive and repressive, Mm and um, and so like what people talk a lot about what comes up must come down. 
But mm-hmm. I've also seen that what gets pushed down must come up. Okay. Like a ball, like in totally. a ball, you try exactly. to push under the pool and, exactly. and sit on it. Like, and then so it the more pops up and bangs you in the face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, so that's just the way it works, right? Like, so, um, so we've got to really be honest about that. And like we've talked about in previous po- podcasts, Trump is not really the issue. His popularity is the issue. Mm. And, um, and then how did he become popular? What is it that's, that's speaking to people? Why are people, people rallying around what, these very right. and so if we look and insular at, ideas? Right. Yeah. So, and if we're looking at that, if we're saying, okay, well, the problem that, that, that I have with it is that I find the racism and the sexism and the xenophobia and the, the Islamophobia really toxic and dangerous and scary... Um, as, as a white woman, I have a particular place of privilege. And so who do I want countering racism and, and Islamophobia and xenophobia? Do I want the people that are the targets of that to be on the main line? Should they be in the front lines dealing with that? Right? Like how fair is that? Like they've, they've got to deal with, with all the, microaggressions and slings and arrows of working within a system that doesn't want them there and does everything in its power and policies to squeeze them out, right? Like that takes a lot of time and energy and focus and it's exhausting and talk about toxic, right? So as a woman, I come across those things in lots of different places, but rather, but, but I can use those places where I have had experience with that to extrapolate and understand like what it feels like to be to have these systematic things pointed at me and for me Mm -hmm. to be shut away from things that I need access to. Right. So, um, so, so how fair is it to put the people that are being attacked on the front line Mm -hmm. and say that they're the ones that have to, because they're going to be speak up against Trump since he, you're the one he's going after kind of thing. Right. (laughs) Like how fair is that? Yeah. And, and what is, what is the chance of that? It's not my problem. Right. And what is the chance of that shifting? Right. So like if we think too about, um, I don't know what episode it was, but we talked a little bit about, um, we talked a little bit about, uh, how, the difference between like shame-based um, humiliation versus embarrassment, right? Mm-hmm. And Brené Brown's definition of that is that externally it looks exactly the same, but it's a difference of whether someone has internalized that toxic negative message or whether right. they have distanced themselves from it, whether they've agreed with it or not. Exactly. Right. And um, and one of the reactions, if someone is having a healthy response to being humiliated, right or being shamed that way is for them to get angry. Mm. Right. That's the healthy response. But then if we think about, Oh, angry black man, angry black women, angry Muslims, like, (laughs) so then we pathologize that and say, see, that's the reason. But yet they're demonstrating a healthy psychological response to what we're Mm -hmm. doing to them or to what the system is doing to them. Do you see what I mean? So, so, and obviously when you're really angry, you tend to not be able to engage in like open dialogue oh, that, that, help, right, that helps people like uh, through questioning and these kinds of gets people to examine their own ideas and where these things are coming yeah. from and stuff like this. Right. So, so I feel like as uncomfortable as it is, as much as I dislike it as as toxic, I mean, it means that I need to have my self care, that I need to find ways to say, okay, you know what? I think we're both 
a little too emotional about this right now. Let's table this discussion for a little while and pick mm-hmm. it up later, but not cut the friendship mm-hmm. or not shut them down. Right. Right. Like if we can be in a space of, well, where, where did you get that idea or yeah. where, right? Like, um, <sighs> I think that because I, I, I feel like what a privileged place for me as a white person to decide I don't want to engage in that conversation. Like, let me just build my little privilege pile up just a little bit higher. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and I, like, I came from a really, you know, those little privilege walks, like I'm in the back. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like we moved because we couldn't afford the rent. There were nights that I didn't have anything to eat. Right. I got pregnant right out of high school. My dad was never around. Both my parents were alcoholics. Like, Right. So it's not when I'm saying privilege, I'm not certainly not someone that was born with a silver spoon in my mouth and had everything handed to me. Um, but as a white woman who has managed to get an education, um, I have a certain position in society. Right. Yeah. I, I was thinking as you were speaking, um, I just met a man uh, about two weeks ago named Oren Salinger, and he wrote a book called um, Towards a More Equal World. Mm. He's he's a, uh, a global economist, and uh, first of all, it's written for regular people. So it's oh, a nice. great, great <laughs> way to get kind of a sense of the history of economics uh, going back quite a long ways to 6,000 BC. Oh wow! Um, to today, and uh, and and the dynamics that are involved in that, and it really helped me understand the Trump phenomenon, which surprised me. And I thought, as you were talking about, what do you do when people are like this? It gave me a little bit of a recipe, which is, out of Jacqueline's book, you ask questions. And instead of having to defend your position, you explore theirs. Right. It's just trying to create some level of understanding. I really have a hard time understanding this. Tell me more. And I noticed uh, somebody in the week, and I wish I could remember who was it, wrote an article because they had started asking these questions, trying to understand what are the underpinning um, attraction. Right. And it was globalism. It mm. was, they're, they're pissed, the world is changing, and it's, yes. it's not mm-hmm. fun, for, and there's losers in the deal. And yeah. people have lost homes, they've lost a lot of stuff. And, uh, but it's bound to happen because one-seventh of the world, which is the West, which is us, has yeah. all the money. Right. Everybody right. else is living on a buck twenty-five a day average, and so what's happening is that shift is that inevitable shift. I mean, you can right. fight it, but it was just whether whether there was a Democrat or Republican it didn't even matter. It's just happening. Happen. Everybody wants to blame somebody because yeah. they're they're lo- losing. They're still not like cutting stone in Bangladesh. You know, they they're yeah. still living pretty good. Right. But, but they're not still, climbing the refuse heaps in India to pull out yeah, cycle balls. They've yeah. lost they've, we've lost the easy jobs, we've lost a lot. And and it's true, but it had to happen. And so it's it's just like anything, you know, that's painful when there's change and they're angry. Yeah. But it helped me have a little more empathy mm-hmm. on what they're going through instead of thinking, mm-hmm. are you an idiot? You know, and, and, right. and uh, interpreting these things, they're angry. Yeah. And you they've know, had real loss. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we've explored before is that the exciting part of this election cycle is that it's become very clear that Americans are fed up with the establishment, right? Yeah. We're, we're, fed up with the sta- we're, we're fed up with the status quo. We're seeing that this the system is not sustainable. 
mm-hmm. um, and is not working for us, the people, right? I, yeah. I'm hesitant to say that it's broken because I think it's doing what it was always designed to do. Um, but but that's another point of debate, right? But right. it's clearly not sustainable and not working for the people at large, and and people are really angry about that. Right. But yeah, I love the like answer asking the questions so that you're. helping them also explore their own, right? Because when you're talking about racism, sexism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, like... There's always fear underpinning all of it. And a lot of it isn't examined. Right. Right. And and at the end of the day, like, scapegoating doesn't fix the problem. Right. And we all want to fix the problem. They think that the problem is the symptom or something that's on the surface, but really the problem is something deeper. Right. And if we're busy trying to scapegoat a group of people, right, not only do we end up committing atrocities in in the name of that, we've got enough examples in history to show us that over and over again, um, but we haven't fixed the problem. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, finding that middle ground, like what is it that we all want? Well, we, we all find the thing you agree on and then ask questions out of that, right? We, we all agree the system is not working. We may disagree about what it is that's causing the problem. Mm-hmm. We all agree that we want, uh, we want a country that lives up to its founding documents, mm-hmm. right? I think all of us would, would say that. So, um, we all want our children to have better lives than we did. We all want, right? Like these are things right. that we can all agree on. So if we can find the middle ground and then ask questions, so much of like racism, sexism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, like it's it's coming from sort of inherited. Um, there, it's not. There, Wait, it's blame the other. When well, things and are it's going not bad, blame the outside. Right, and it's forces. not questioning things. Right, yeah. so. Getting people to question where did that idea come from? Why do you believe that way? Is that really working for you? What are the results of that? Mm-hmm. How did you get to this place? Right? Mm. Like, if we start sort of combing back, then we have a chance of awakening, right? And it was, I mean, I was raised in a family that still, still uses the N word on a regular basis, right? Like, my grandfather, everyone says, yeah, it was just like Archie Bunker, right? So, um, when I was a little kid, I thought, oh, Archie Bunker's on television, he's funny. But, like, <laughs> as an adult, I was like, wow! <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but that was my grandfather, you know? So, it's, um, but it was people asking me questions when these things would come out of my mouth that yeah. came out of my mouth because they were the things that came out of my family's mouth, right? Yeah. So, people were like, man, where'd you get that from? Or, you know, you know what I mean? And I, so I had people challenge me, ask me questions. Usually I would respond angrily, and this is one of the things that to be prepared for. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's um, something that came up for me as you guys were talking is that um, is also giving people a chance to work through those emotions. Yes. Um, I had um, <laughs> uh, an experience where this was around the time the Ferguson uh, stuff was happening. Mm. And, um, and, and there were people posting, you know, stuff on Facebook and, you know, sharing their thoughts and, and, um, and, and I thought, you know, this is good because I, I keep hearing that, you know, one of the problems is that white people won't talk about race, right? They pretend the racism is over. And so I'm like, okay, this is good. This is opening it up for us to have a discussion about it. So I had responded to something that someone had posted and, um, you know, with my thoughts and yeah, you know, I, I see this as a problem and this is why. And, and someone who read it misinterpreted what I said 
and and like wrote this tirade like this angry really angry response and and I was just um uh well felt like you said like that thing you said you know when you feel like you've been wrongly accused then mm-hmm. you feel angry and 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 I was just like you know this is why white people won't talk about race because when you do, you know, you get misunderstood and people get, you know, then that anger gets directed at you. And it's like, it's not my fault that people have been racist to you, you know, your whole life. But, but, you know, I, it made me realize that it's one thing to think about, Oh, we're going to have a conversation about this and we're talking about this like intellectuals. But when you really start having these conversations, um, those feelings are going to come out that anger, you know, of, 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 you know, that natural healthy response of feeling that you've been mistreated is going to come out. And so I realized as we were talking just now that that's one of the things that, you know, you have to be prepared for is that there's going to be some uncomfortable stuff to move through, which strangely ties back into our first segment about the bereavement and, you know, that there's certain emotions that you have to go through those painful things in order to come out on the other side, um, ready for something new. And I think too, a big, I love that you did that tie in. It's beautiful. Um, because I think, too, a big part of the race conversation in this country and in the West in general, in every country, I mean, it's, um, but we're, in the West, we're the ones that have, like, the global power. So uh, our inability to deal with it has a lot more impact on other places in the world. Um, and a big part of that conversation is letting go of the idea that we had of ourselves and our civilization, Right. Like we were there's a saying um, that until the lions have their own historians, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Oh, right. And um, and it was really so. So the, the, the histories we've been told, we've been we've been told state approved histories of mm-hmm. how stuff went down. Right. Because every every dynasty has the way that it wants to paint its, its rule. Right. Um, and I, I got like a, I had an experience with this during my exchange year in the Netherlands, that first year that I was there. Um, and I, I ended up like befriending all these history majors. Right. Um, I knew a couple of people that were in the literature department, but it seems like the people I really connected with were history majors. And there were several, this university did quite a bit to attract international students. Um, so we're sitting in the, in the cantina and, um, there's people from Norway, from, from Holland, from England, uh, me as an American, Spain, I think there were, yeah, there were some French people there as well. And they're all talking about one specific historical event that had happened. Now these are all people majoring in history, right? And they're arguing about, and I had no idea because as an American, I'm like, I don't know. Didn't you guys have a war sometime? Like, I had no idea. Like, it was something I had never heard of because it didn't happen in America. It didn't so to us, so it wasn't not that a war, right? Like part of us of our revolution. So why should I need to know that? Um, so yeah, so like typical American, I have no clue what they're talking about. But it, but it, um, it was it was really beautiful because it meant I also had no opinion of what they were talking about. So right. then I'm just watching the the dynamics of what's going on and people getting 
more and more impassioned, more and more upset, more and more angry, convinced that they are absolutely right and the other person is lying or they don't have it right or they don't have the authority or that they're, right, I'm a history major and well, I'm a history major too. And right, so like everyone's got equal authority. Everyone has, you know, like they all know their stuff. No one's forgetting anything. They all learn different versions basically of the same historical event. And so it was just like, do you not like? The, so I said that thing, there, right? Like until the lions get their own historians, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And each of your respective countries had a vested interest in telling the story a particular way. Yeah. And so you have all gotten your country's version of, of what happened. Right. So instead of arguing, so it's kind of like the the, the men and the elephant, right? Like mm-hmm. instead of arguing about who's got the right version like what would happen if you had a conversation combine all of thread these different to get these different interpretations together and maybe from that actually be able to piece together what really happened then you have a fuller (laughs) picture of what happened and then you also have a fuller picture of how do we learn from this as we move forward Mm -hmm. right because you're just the process of weaving it together is going to start giving you the, the tools and insights that you need to find the solutions, right? But I think, like, recognizing that that this is happening to all of us, right? That this, we have been told particular histories because those that told us the histories had a vested interest in telling the story that way. Mm-hmm. And to have honest conversations around this and to heal as as a nation, right, is, is to recognize that we weren't told the whole story and that there were really atrocious things that happened and that we have been benefiting from that. Right. So I think, and I'm curious how the book that you talked about with the global economics addresses those kind of, it sounds like it's kind of doing it anyway, right? Like this, there's this here, we've got a a one seventh of the population of the world, but we're sitting with like 80, 90% of the world's wealth. 95% 95% of the world's, world's wealth. wealth. And and so, I mean, yeah, it is. It's, it's basically, you know, what is happening, which is, and, and, and it's, the real story is that it's to our benefit. Yes. If we do not want China to fail. We do not want India to fail. If, if that happens, we go down with it. So we are linked. Yes. Our, our, our futures are linked. And, and that's what concerns me when I saw the China bashing going on because it was like, oh, wait a minute. We should be figuring out how to make nice with these folks because yeah. we are linked. And if they fail, it's going to hurt everybody. So you know, figuring out how we can be helpful, how they can learn from our mistakes. Right. How we can help them skip over the materialistic part of that and get mm. to the altruistic part of it. I mean, there's just so much that could happen if we could get our game together. And that's what I loved about uh, Warren Salinger is, is that's his whole life work is to help change that game. Mm. And uh, so it's, it's, it's really kind of a beautiful... What was the name of the book again? It's called um, Towards a More Equal World. Towards a More Equal World. We'll Sounds have to like put a, that in the show notes. I know. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. to, like, I, I see a, a book club uh, podcast <laughs> in the future. <laughs> yeah, you could get Werner. We're in here. He's here part of the year. Oh, that's even cooler. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this is great that, you know, to have you here. And we've talked about it would be great to have guests on, too. So... Yeah. 
um, so yeah, you're our first guest. <laughs> Thank you for being here. <laughs> so, all right. So we've run over a little bit, but that, uh, hopefully you can find your break in the middle there. And, uh, then you've got an extra nice long, uh, podcast to, to savor until mm-hmm. we record again in about a week and a half, uh, in about two weeks. Yeah. So, um, in the meantime, um, if you're not already subscribe on iTunes, yes. you can just search for kitchen table alchemy on iTunes and also on Facebook. Uh, we have a closed uh, Facebook group, but all you have to do is click the join button and then Jacqueline will invite you, you in. in. <laughs> yeah. And we also have a Pinterest page. So um, if you have a hard time finding, if there's an article that you had seen on the Facebook group that you wanted to go find again, um, find us on Pinterest. Also Kitchen Table Alchemy um, there in Pinterest. And uh, so not only articles we talk about here, articles we post in the group, but other things that I find that, you know, it's sort of like a, a roving show notes thing. Yeah. Like we need to talk about this article someday. So, yeah. um, and it's yeah. great just to have discussions on there too. You know, sometimes absolutely. people post up interesting things they find online and spark some good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We want to, we want to start the conversation, not be the conversation. So, um, so we want to find as many ways for us to connect with each other as possible. And, um, and so pay attention to the group too on when the next pop-up podcast will be and, uh, come join us in person. And once the mic shuts off, the discussion continues. All right. And have a great week. Yeah. Thanks.